Mbote. Yakanahe. Welcome to season two. Yes, you heard us right. Tiny, they ready? I don't think they are ready yet. Here we are with the new season, with new guests from across the continent, sharing the most inspiring entrepreneur journeys. We got Libya, Zimbabwe, Ghana, and so much more. Welcome to season two of a series of AMS. Mbote, my name is Binja, hailing from the heart of Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I'm so excited to have you here. With me is my co-host, my baby boo. Hey, fans. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey, Akwaba Jumbo. It's your girl, Tiny, hailing from the beautiful Lone Star Republic of Liberia, located on the coastline of West Africa. It's West Africa in the building. Thank you. So we want to welcome you all to a series of AMS, a show about entrepreneurial women in Africa. On this podcast, we celebrate tastemakers in business who are continually innovating, empowering those around them and slaying in style. Why? Because we are all more than one thing. We demystify what it takes to start, grow, and run successful businesses and organizations across the continent. We talk to boss women of all backgrounds, from CEOs, business owners, policy makers, uh, analysts, taste makers, influencers, the whole nine yard. Okay, we're talking to African girl magic queens in this piece right here. So today's guest is Elizabeth Berabose. Elizabeth is founder of Berabose Designs, a fashion brand that promotes decolonial ecology, women's empowerment, and innovation. And we are so excited to chat with this entrepreneurial queen. So welcome to a series of ants, Elizabeth. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I know, I know. Can you can you greet all the Randis in the building? Guys, if I didn't mention Elizabeth is from Rwanda, coming to us straight from Kigali. So Elizabeth, welcome. Share a little bit about who you are with our audience. We would love to get to know you more. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. I couldn't like have hope for a better introduction and better hype. So. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. Yeah. I, love it. I love it. Uh, so yeah, I'm Elizabeth. So it's pronounced Verabose. Verabose. Oh, um, I love that. Um, <laughs> So basically in Rwanda, I mean, the traditional way is that uh, the father names each kid uh, according to, you know, wanted to give a specific signification, mm-hmm. a meaning to, to a name. So it happens that me and my brothers, I have two brothers, we don't have the same last name. Uh-huh. So you have a first name that is usually the Christian name. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a last name that is really like a Rwanda name mm-hmm. that is in Shinyaranda mm-hmm. and that has a special meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine Verabose means that suits everyone, that appeals everyone, mm-hmm. but more in the sense that, you know, bringing everyone together mm-hmm. around one thing. Okay, okay. And that's really my dad who who, who chose that mm-hmm. name. Um, the reason why he named me like this is not just because he thought that, you know, his girl was going to be an amazing designer right. and just, you know, uh, have everyone loving her. No, he had no idea yet. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I'm turning 29 next month, Ooh. so which means that I was born in 1994. Um, and I mean, think maybe some of 
people know what happened in Rwanda in 1994. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the genocide against the Tutsi. Mm. And uh, as I was born in June, it was right in the middle of the genocide. Oh, wow. And considering that everything that was happening, uh, my dad was like, okay, this is a time where just people are turning against each other. There's so much like hate mm-hmm. around. And I feel like my child, if my child has a chance to be born right. um, during that time, I just want to give a name that is like, making everyone come together yeah. and that just, you know, a symbol of like love and, you know, don't discriminate people, just love people for who they are and not because they're black, white, small, right. big, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So that was his whole reasoning behind my name. Yeah. Um, and I actually just found out last year, to be honest. So I've been wow. living without knowing what my name is <laughs> for 27 years. No way. Uh, <laughs> no, first of all, yeah. that is yeah, such yeah, a yeah. beautiful meaning. Like, that's one of the things that I love the most about African culture is that you won't find somebody who was just given a name because even if your parent was mm-hmm. angry in the process of naming you, there's thoughts that went behind the name. You know what I mean? And I, I, I always ask yeah. people, I'm like, okay, so what does it mean? I always ask people, so what is your name? and they're like oh there's no there's not much meaning behind it and I'm like oh my god like that's one of my favorite things about like the beauty of African culture Mm. it's the same thing like I don't even have a Christian name both my names are are extremely Mm. African names so the moment I open my mouth people are like wait what did you say your name was and I love that it's always a conversation starter and the conversation is always around a story you know and your dad like went through this can you imagine through the one of the toughest times of somebody's life to have that level of hope, that level of like aspiration for better, even though you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Oh my God. He, and how appropriate that like you turned out to be this incredible woman too. So he, he thought about it and he saw something in you. I, I love this so much for you. So Elizabeth, how we usually start um, our show is asking you to give us a little bit of a background about like, where it is you grew up. So who was Elizabeth at about like five years old? What was she like? Where did she live? Um, Did you always know at five that you were going to become this version of yourself? (laughs) She's like, oh, absolutely not. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so as I said, I was born in Rwanda mm-hmm. in 94, and when I was about three, we moved to Belgium, mm-hmm. to Brussels, mm-hmm. uh, the entire family, and, you know, it's the end of the 90s, and my, par- my parents, you know, are new in Europe, and just what they're trying to do is just adapt to the continent. Right. Um, so from a very young age, you do realize that you're different from your classmates. Mm-hmm. You don't really understand why people are mean to you because mm-hmm. you don't understand the concept of race right. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think for me, it came very, very early at three, at four. Mm-hmm. But then you'll go, I'll go to my mom and try to explain her and her, her focus was, you know, they came there for us to have, you know, better access to education, better opportunities in life and things like that. So mm-hmm. me facing racism was the least of her issues. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she was like, just go to school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I think, yeah, initially five-year-old, six-year-old me was very, very confident, like despite all that. Um, mm. Very, very important, empowered and very outspoken. Yeah. But the more you grow up, yeah. and I feel like as a black woman, slowly they start telling you that, you know, you need to behave a certain yes. way. And not, you know, people can see you too much. You need to tone it down, basically. Yes. Um, I think from there, like when I was 11, 12, that's when I really became a whole shy person who wasn't mm. talking at all. Like a very low voice mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I just spent hours with people without like putting one word out there, just be sitting there wow. and be like, <laughs> wow. 
And yeah, so I think uh, growing up, that generation of like people who moved in the 90s in Europe, mm. it, was, it was a different type of thing. When I see my cousin now in like 2023, yeah. when she's facing racism, she has us mm. who've experienced that, for mm-hmm. example, who know what to tell yeah. her, you know, uh, who have advices and who are there to support yeah. her. But in our case, when our parents grew up in Africa, everyone looked like yeah. them. Now they're in Europe, but they haven't faced racism at such young age. Yeah. It was it was a different type of challenge, yeah. you know? Because um, you go to school, for me, that's how it was. I go to school, there was racism. Then you go to the home or, like, you know, the family, so your support system. And as Africans, we have other issues that are one of them being colorism. So <laughs> I was like, ah, I can never catch a break, literally. <laughs> that's crazy. So, like, I mean, I mean, in, in all honesty, like, how did this impact, like, you, you self-esteem-wise? Like, growing up like that because at least for me i know self-esteem was i was like so do i sit here and let this woman run my life or do i just do what i do and i i'm very much like a rebel when somebody says you can't do something then i'm like oh say less let me show you how to do it but like i'm only facing one type of adversary here like i can't imagine what that was like so i don't know if you want to share a little bit about that uh i mean i think my self-esteem was pretty low Mm. uh, to be honest because yeah, I didn't I didn't have maybe any direct role models or anything just to have that support system again, you know, my parents were busy doing other mm. things. And I reached a point when I was a teenager, I would sit down with myself and be like, Okay, my mom is very light skinned, my dad is very dark skinned, mm. so I got it from him. Yeah. So I was upset, like I was mad at him for some mm. reason. You know? Yeah. I was like if my mom had married a like white man or something, yeah. I would look more like her. Right, right. <laughs> I went through like a whole process wow. and I was convinced that I cannot marry, for example, a black man. Mm. That's not possible because the way I look already, yeah. I marry another black man. No, like I don't want my kids to suffer, suffer from the same things, right? Um, that, that, is, that is so much to carry as a child. Do you know what I mean? Like when you say you're a teenager, just so we're all clear, you're still a child. And for you to be thinking exactly. about like when I have a family... Oh my God, like you're still just trying to make it day by day. And I'm just like, oh no, we're trying to pick out a lipstick and you're trying to be like, okay, I can't marry no man dark like this because listen, and and I feel like those are the impacts of like colonialism as well that become remnants, right? Because who taught us how to hate ourselves, right? Who taught us that the color of our skin was not beautiful, right? It's colonialism. You know, it's all our colonial masters who came and they were like, no, 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 no too dark even even if you look at like um americans they had what you call like house slaves and field slaves like if you were too dark you were out in the field if you are a little light-skinned you come in the house and i feel like that is that is the mentality that kills us as africans because instead of separating ourselves from those bonds and from those chains here we find ourselves perpetuating that you know because even the, the colonial masses are you know quote unquote gone in theory but we are perpetuating those same ideals and you were in freaking belgium you were in the colonial master's house and he didn't even have to do nothing outside of uh, outside of being racist they the africans took on the mantle and they were like it's fine I got, I got the colorism part here. It's okay. I don't mean to belabor this. It's just, I don't, I, I'm, I'm so impressed by you even more that you were able to become this version of yourself. So let's talk a little bit about 
um, your teenage years, did you, I know you said you were a little angry with your dad, but were you more of like a rebel with a cause, a rebel without a cause, or were you just like, let me put my head down, get my grades? What, what kind of teenager were you growing up? Uh, I was very focused, to be honest. Like first of the class type of, mm. um, because I will have that thing of thinking, okay, we didn't, I was very aware, you know, that you know, mm. we moved from one place to another, mm. even though I was very young. Mm. So from a very young age, I understood that this is an opportunity and that need to like actually take it mm. off, yeah. right? Mm. Before we set that question that Benja asked, I really wanted to understand sort of your mental health, you know, as a kid growing up and having all these different like moving factors that are quite big pillars um, that can truly play a huge role on your mental health as a kid, trying to find your identity and where you belong. And I think, you you know, you grew up in a context where I think you and Benja had pretty much ironed that out, but like adding like ethno-political, tribalistic, like, you know, internal things to it, it makes it even 10 times harder. Because like you said, you're dealing with colorism, race, and then now we're going to add like tribalism and, you know, and gender and all the other big pillars. Like that can truly take a toll on anyone's sort of mental health yeah. and the ability to truly be confident in who they are. So I just want to tease a little bit on your mental health as a kid. Like how were you able to navigate these different challenges? And, you know, it's so funny, Elizabeth, you know, I hear you say this in terms of like, you know, one of one parent is light skin, one parent, parent is dark, darker skin. And unfortunately, like what Benja was saying, the way colonial, you know, um, masters and just colonization set us up in Africa, it played a huge detriment to our identity and truly loving our skin tone and our hues and, and all that good things. Um, So I want to say this quickly, right? So I come from a background that's actually quite unique and I can resonate with you, but on the different angle, right? So I am African, right? So I'm half Liberian and half Indian. You know, my father's Indian. My mother is Liberian, African, right? And mm. I was the kid that did not have did not fit in either or like either or <laughs> identity you know i was you know too um african to be indian too indian looking to be liberian so it's like i found myself <laughs> in this like weird space right and i grew up yeah. also in america and then i'm also i'm not american so i'm just like identity crisis was an issue and i know it, it affected my own mental health like growing up as a kid feeling like mm. where the hell do i freaking belong you know mm. when people see the outside like oh like yeah you're biracial and you know like you're a mixed girl like you're cool yeah but i'm biracial in the most clashing of cultures right <laughs> that deal yeah. with colorism and racism and you don't freaking belong, like, you know what I'm saying, type of situation. Mm -hmm. Like, so yeah, so I said that, I just want to know, like, how was your mental health? I'm not sure that at that age, you know, you have actually time to, to, to process and understand how you are, if you're okay, how, I know that it made me feel bad, yeah. but then I wouldn't, like, think mm -hmm. past that. Um, something that I would say that I'm very mm -hmm. grateful is that I have two older brothers, like, the age gap is huge, one is 10 years older than me, the other one is mm -hmm. nine years older than me, and because I came way after only girl as well okay. they developed you know that protection type yeah. of like mechanism where they mm -hmm. will just give me unconditional like love and mm. appreciation for no reason <laughs> <laughs> and, um honestly if it wasn't for them because like i was so precious to them when i was very young i mean still now but like it was more obvious mm -hmm. when we we're younger i think that okay i'll go deal with this stuff some family members will make me feel bad mm. because of the color of my skin and things like that but at the end of the day i had those two amazing men who were just yeah. like 
mm. giving me so much care and love that I, I was like, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I can do I, I can deal with that. Yeah. Um, it spoiled me a little bit because I thought that all men would be like that growing up, but then. <laughs> she said plot twist i came back and i found oh my god no let me tell you you know the the funny thing that that you said there um elizabeth where i i fully believe that like there's nothing at least that i want for every african girl to grow up with than like having positive men around her you know just the same way like you grew up and and you had like people affirming you, your, your, especially your brothers, being able to lift you up and speak so positively about you. I think even though it, it like gives you a little bit of like rose-colored glasses around how men are when you're growing up, I think mm-hmm. it kind of balances out your self-esteem, yeah. you know, because you at least know, okay, fine. Okay, all of these people might think I'm ugly, but like my brothers actually love me. They care for me. They show it in multiple ways. Like, that is so freaking beneficial. I understand that, you know, men can be trash, but at least the ones who are there when you're upbringing. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm glad that she had that. I'm really glad that she had that. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's something that like, even, even for me, I always, I always say this to patients as well. I, I, we've had this conversation with some of our guests where there's such a big impact of having like a positive man, like male role model in your life and seeing what that looks like and being able to tangibly say this type of care made me feel special. Mm-hmm. This type of care made me feel valued. I got validation as a result of that. So I, I'm, I'm just so glad that when the rest of the world was completely BSing around you, you at least had these two men who were uplifting you and, and keeping you, you know, yeah. loved and cared for. Yeah, there's a blueprint in how you measure men that you interact with across the board, whether it's a romantic relationship, platonic relationships, colleagues, you know, when you have that firm blueprint of how a a man supposed to treat a woman, um, you, you have something to measure other people against. And I think that's truly helpful and critical as a as a woman growing up and especially as a young girl too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's hop back into uh your teenage years. I know you mentioned straight A students <laughs> killing it, like the African that you were born to be. Um, she said, she said, what is an A? What is an A but a synonym to my name? Hello. Um, so tell us a little bit more about those years for you. Uh, yeah, again, first of the class type of students, uh, I was very focused. I was really understanding that I have a chance to be there, so I might as well, you know, take full advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, um, when I was 14, mm. my parents got divorced. This is like the worst time for children because I'm mm. finding myself and, you know, I'm trying to be a good student, a good kid at the house and everything. And then the family dynamic has to change. Yeah. That had a huge impact on my um, my grades and mm. the school in general. And that's where also you see the system in Europe is that, yeah. you know, black, uh, I think it's the same in the US, black people are meant to do this kind of work, you know, they only belong to these industries. Mm. And so as soon as, for example, I was dealing with stuff at home, so I couldn't perform as I was performing before. All of a sudden you have all the teachers talking to my mom. Now I think she should go like, she should leave this type of um, 
education and just got to learn something more technical. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Try to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> Your audacity. And you know, my mom, she didn't grow up in Europe. So, and she came and asked me and like, is that what you think you, you want to do? Or you know, you're capable of just coming back. Right. Yeah. And I told her, I was like, I'm hundred percent capable. It's just that mm-hmm. I, I needed this year, you know, <laughs> to, to just be off. Um, and again, like I came back, I think stronger than yeah. ever because I was so pissed. Yeah. That those people weren't even allowing yeah. me, you know, to be vulnerable just for one moment of my life and, you know, actually process what's happening to me. Yeah. And again, that comes down to, mm. you know, black mm. women who always have to put a wall. We can be sad. We can yeah. be sensitive. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth, we live in a context, I think even the European and the American context, I think is there's similarities as when mm. it comes to, you know, race and how they handle racial experience. And I think, you know, what we find ourselves is that white fragility is like real where white women white children are allowed Mm. to be as fragile Mm -hmm. as possible and they'll be handled with the best like care and sensitivity and emotions and black women black children black girls we're expected like we're not allowed to experience the full gamut of our emotions yeah god forbid a black woman you know comes somewhere like angry for a day then you're the mm, angry for the rest woman. of your life you know what i'm saying oh you're yeah. aggressive let a black woman be assertive about what she's going through for the rest of it yeah. you're aggressive you know and it's unfortunate that you know it's this, this is something that it's plagued on us and we also take on that role that we need to be sort of that backbone of our community backbone of our families you know the pillar of our you know of our society we're supposed to you know um show this mm-hmm. like superhuman superhero sort of persona regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in black women should remain strong should remain resilient you know and i feel like that is such a it cripples us us too because it allows people to ignore that that we're freaking humans and we have feelings and we have traumas and we have wounds that you know we want to take care of and heal and we deserve you know we deserve the opportunity to, to be vulnerable and be respected in that vulnerability mm-hmm. and not be looked at as quote-unquote people confuse vulnerability and weakness is not the same. These, are, these are not the same thing yeah um so yeah so i think you know your experience unfortunately it definitely bears the same within the american context you know as well yeah and i think we've seen our mothers you know uh acting like that so we just think that's the normality right if my mom was just crying in her corner and then coming back as if nothing happened then i should do the same yeah the expectation of you being able to bounce back versus um somebody who is white we're expected to kind of hold them with kids gloves and say oh no sweetheart like take all the time you need but if a black woman expresses the same um, level of emotions, the same level of empathy is not doled out to her. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I think, you know, what's striking to me, um, Elizabeth, in just this few minutes of us talking is in the first like 15 years of your life, you've experienced racism, colorism, you know, you've kind of been looked down upon not only as a woman, but as an African person. And I think mm. it still really goes back to who you are as a person and how we're almost the sum total of the things that happened to us. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm just so impressed already. I know we just had 14 years old in your journey, but you know, you've lived through multiple lifetimes already, you know, and, and it's so impressive to see um, the fact that 
all of these experiences are things that like now you're talking about it, you don't sound like remorseful or bitter about it. You're just talking about it like, oh, it's part of my story. And, and so that's super, super admirable. And, and that's part of what we want to talk about here on our podcast is it's talking to real women who go through real issues. But none of that is a stumbling block. You know, everything that you go through is, you know, a stair in your staircase as you move up. Right. So let's talk about like how you made those transitions. So you went to your parents went through a divorce. You did you end up staying with your mom or did you end up staying with your dad? I don't know if it's by default, but, you know, just the culture, the way it is, it's just the mom who's the, you know, the figure of the education um in the family so mm-hmm. yeah ended yeah. up staying mm-hmm. with my mom uh, my dad was back and forth between belgium and rwanda and so that's the thing I, mm-hmm. it's when i say it was the worst time is that you know you're a teenager you're trying to figure it yourself you're discovering boys and all that i've always had an amazing had a relationship with my dad but then the moment that happened and that that now he wasn't full-time mm-hmm. with us anymore in the same country it's like i grew up in a like very like nice household where the men in my life were amazing. My brothers, my dad, mm-hmm. even my uncles and everything. And mm-hmm. as soon as like my dad stepped out, I just started resenting all men around me for no reason. So I started like not disliking, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel as close to my brothers anymore. I was going through puberty and all that, you know? So it's like, mm-hmm. really? I don't like men right, right now. Right. <laughs> I feel like all of you guys are going to end up disappointing <laughs> me and things like that. And it's a good thing and a bad thing. Because uh, now I've, you know, I took the time to unlearn all of these things, mm-hmm. but it actually created such like a strong relationship between me yeah. and my mom that you know made me understand mm-hmm. who she is. Because I think that I don't know the African culture; our parents don't talk to us like that. You know, we don't even understand how they got married. You know, how yeah. <laughs> they even dated before yeah. they got married yeah. and all yeah. that. <laughs> they yeah. were Mary, the Virgin Mary. <laughs> <laughs> you just just came in your stomach just like that. The Virgin Mary, you're like, huh? Like, really, mom? <laughs> so, so Amanda, I mean, your experiences have been quite astounding. Perfect. So, what school did you attend? Um, in was it in Belgium? Did you attend your, your college years? And then, what was your focus uh, area? And what was life like? you know, your your college years, were you, you know, super academia focused or were you like Benja who was like, you know what, this is self-discovery time. I'm about to, you know, hit every single school (laughs) class and every club. Twerk on a beach, twerk on a boat, everything. Every other Uh, dance school club. Everything. I pierced everything. (laughs) I tattooed everything. Yeah. Couldn't do all that. I still had African parents, so I had... (laughs) Couldn't. (laughs) Yeah, to answer your question. So my mom was is in the education um sector, if I can say. So she you knows she works with a lot of like white kids and all mm-hmm. that. So she understands, you know, and that's how I think she's more of like a modern African parent, I would say, because she sees what happens with the white mm-hmm. people and she's like my child is okay you know so let me be a bit cold with her <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so she, she was still very open to like you know what you want to study I didn't have to study law and like you know medicine like most of um, other African children in, in Europe and I told her you know I really want to be a journalist and I would love to study mm. journalism and communication but then a lot of people will come and be like you know have you seen one um news reporter in Belgium that is black? No. So do you think you're going to be the first one? And it was very discouraging, you know? Ah. 
So I was like, okay, am I choosing the right thing? Everyone's telling me that I won't find a job at the end of my degree and all that. And just to add up to that, I entered a university that you realize that that industry is very wide. So I entered in the... um, how do you call it? So mm-hmm. I'm very French speaking, so sometimes I don't have some English words. <laughs> but um, don't wa- you you can say you can say it to me. I'll translate. Don't worry about it. If you have it only in French, I'll translate. You have a translator right here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't know how you call the amphitheater. You know, like when you enter in the. Um, it's not a classroom. It's way bigger oh, than a classroom. Not like an auditorium. Yeah, the auditorium exactly. Um, so I entered the auditorium first day of university mm-hmm. and then it was like 600 seats, right? And then I was down and I look up and I see only like mm-hmm. blonde faces and I'm like, what the hell? Where am I? And then oh. I saw one black girl and I was like, I'm going to go sit next to her. <laughs> yes, we're about to be friends. <laughs> we're going to be besties, okay? Besties. It's me and you by fire by force. We are friends. So I sit next to her. And I'm peeping on her, like, form, and I see she has a, like, Kinyaranda last name. And I'm like, oh, and she's Rwandan. Like, what are the odds? Oh. <laughs> oh, that, right. that this place. Yeah, we got our squad. Even better. Literally, so I'm, like, starting introducing herself. And that's, like, short story, but we met, like, uh, in the auditorium 2013 in September. And then till this day, she's my best friend. Mm-hmm. I think she's like literally the most, after my family, the most important person in my life. Oh, I love that. So, <laughs> oh, I just have to talk yes. about <laughs> Come on, come on. Give her a shout out. Just tell her name real quick on the World Wide Web. <laughs> yeah, give her a shout out. Let her know. <laughs> her name is Mary. And I was actually telling her that we're celebrating a 10 year, 10 year friendship. <laughs> so, my own at Christmas is on you. I will send you my father's note back. <laughs> why are you like this? You see, why are you like this? You see our own friendship. You see our own friendship. That's why they don't sit us in the same classrooms. <laughs> Never. We would not study. It's a lie. We would not <laughs> study. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> what was like one course that you took at the university? Because I know you mentioned how um, you wanted to study journalism. You being, you know, a, a woman that is black in that context, you know, you don't see that representation in that specific field. One, yeah. how were you able to truly power through that? Like, where did yeah. you get that confidence and motivation to say, you know what, I don't give a shit mm-hmm. whether there is nobody who looks like me that's not in this space. I'm going to be in this space because that's what I want to do. And I'm confident not only can I rise to the occasion, but I can also create room for others to follow who look like me. Right. Right. And then two, what's one course that you took that was so like profound, like, and you felt like this course definitely shaped why I chose this specific field. Hmm. I'll say we had a class called uh, public speaking. And again, you know, remember when I turned yeah. 11, 12, I became that whole introvert shy person. So my voice was very low. And even when I told my mm. family that I was going to study journalism, they were like, are you sure? Because you're quiet, you're shy. I'm not sure this is for you. And when I took the, that course of the public speaking one, and we have to do a lot of exercise in front of the classroom and things like that. That's when I realized that whatever I've been told before, that's not true. I'm actually very good at it. I'm very good in like, you know, presenting mm. ideas in public. And all these people telling me, you know, they're only white people yeah. or maybe, you know, racially ambiguous people on TV in Belgium. Those are the ones we put on screen. Not you. You're not racially ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> you are chocolate. And we do not want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I was... Was we the ones that were racially ambiguous people? We out here just such a corporation. They're over there. No, but as as long as you know yourself, patient. As long as you know yourself. I confess. I confess all the time. I'm gonna go to hell. So you're always on the truth. <laughs> no, but so when I took that course, I, I realized that I was so good at this. I was like, you know, fuck whatever they were thinking. Mm. I'm gonna like you know, master this. I know I'm mm-hmm. good at it and I'm going to master this and I'm going to make it yeah. like my thing to the point that every time we'll have anything to present yeah. in front of like the classroom or any project and stuff like that. After all the white kids were like, you know, it is the best here, the one presenting. And I was like, oh, no, you are not. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so, now, so now you want to see me. Okay. Personal respect. <laughs> On my race, my gender, my culture, and my name. Let me let me teach you how this is done. Yeah, Elizabeth is out here like. Also, now you you know my name. Oh, oh, you saw my skills. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Just double checking, making sure real recognize real though. It's really, cool. um, yeah, I think so. That, that that was like a life changing course for me because till this day, anything that involves public speaking, mm. I just love it for no reason. Like that's why I'm enjoying this podcast because I yeah. love to speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and we love to hear you speak. So let's talk about um what you did after you graduated. Did you stay in Belgium? Did you go into work? Were there internships? What did you end up doing? So the the way the education system is in Belgium is that usually most people just go for the full five years of master's degree. And just at the end of your mm-hmm. bachelor, you can do an exchange program uh type of thing. You just go to another mm-hmm. university, either in Europe mm-hmm. or outside of Europe. And so because I spoke already Spanish, I really wanted to improve my Spanish and decided uh, to go to Spain. I was in the south of Spain for six months and I was 21. So my first experience living abroad by myself, no parents, no nothing. So I was living my best life for sure. <laughs> hey! Let's! Let's wait! So yeah, uh, when I was in Spain, that's when I realized that I didn't want to like live in Belgium forever. That that experience abroad was like, I think um, my skills and my talent is to show to the outside world. And that's the first time I realized I need to be out there. I shouldn't be stuck to Brussels. Um, so I went back, finished, did my master's yeah. degree. And when I was looking for an internship at the end of the degree, I was just applying everywhere in the world but Belgium. Mm-hmm. I was willing to go to even Jordan, Egypt, mm. whatever. My mom was like, are you sure? I was like, I just want to be gone. <laughs> yeah. Get me the hell out of here. Check it, check it out. Check it out. I think, yeah, I applied to Kenya as well, South America. And I had that one internship I applied to in New York. Mm. And unfortunately, that's the one. I mean, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but mm. at that time, I was so sad that's the only one that called me back. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I was like, I don't feel like I belong to the U.S. I don't see myself in the U.S. Mm. And I did the interview, it went well, so I ended up doing the internship there, but I was very much not excited about it. Even though, yes, it was the U.N., so, you know, it's everyone's uh-huh. dream job and everything like that. Uh, my parents were like, this yeah. is lifetime opportunity, yeah. you know, everything that we've done. Now you get shit, you know? Yeah. And being in New York is that, I think it's similar to your experience, but, like, my whole life, until I was 23... It was just me being an African kid in Europe. And then I moved to mm. New York. And now I'm African, European yeah. kid living in the US. So I was so confusing to them. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. 
I have people life. coming to me, so you're from Belgium, but you're black. Are there black people in Belgium? <laughs> oh my God. And sometimes we really need to be praying for like American ignorance because oh, yeah. the questions really? you get. I said, God, keep those people away from me because I don't have the manners to be gentle with your emotions. No, I don't. So- if you don't have Google, don't come for me. You should have Googled this before you came and asked me. How are you going to ask if there are black people in Belgium? Huh? So, I am American ignorance, number one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alex, I would take ignorance for 500, please. But you at least know how to Google. No, it was it was the stuff where you get people talking about, oh, do they still ride elephants in Africa? Huh? I know, it's, it's, it's the most it's, ridiculous. It's 2008, yeah. sis. Yeah. Yeah. What? I think for me, it's not like, obviously, you know, we're fully aware that, you know, the black, uh, we're everywhere. Like, you know, you go to Alaska, you find black people there. We're everywhere, you know? And the world mm. is turned into like this melting pot and with immigration, you know, people are finding themselves in different contexts. I think for, and I can speak for everybody who's ignorant, just my ignorant ass, is <laughs> I think my place more is like, how is mm-hmm. living in those contexts? Because we understand race in America, right? And mm-hmm. how sort of challenging that may be. Mm-hmm. But I will say this. So there is a little bit of difference where in America, mm-hmm. you do have a little bit of leg room a bit. Because American mm-hmm. racism is it's horrendous. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the leg room in the sense that you'll find more solidarity, like, you know, to truly push that system or the freedom to speak against it, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in certain contexts, maybe it's a little bit much more harder mm-hmm. So vocally and visibly speak, you know what I'm saying? Speaking mm. against it without you feeling mm-hmm. like I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to have that. You know, the repercussion mm-hmm. a little bit may be different. And I have been to like Brussels a little bit for work. I worked in Europe a little bit, like uh, Denmark and Sweden. So those experiences, like I honestly, I hated the Scandinavian um, or even those type of countries. Like, because I saw it. I saw what what, what racism like, sort of looked like. And I, could, and I had a comparison yeah. between coming from America that Harrison mm. um and it was just like my thought process was like how mm. how are the black community like truly mm-hmm. like living in this context fully you know actualizing yeah. their own identity and you know and their own like mm-hmm. self-love and self-worth i think that's the standpoint i come from but i think most americans like you guys said it's true it's no it is but i still think that the u.s kind of like shaped the person that i am today a lot you know that um in belgium i couldn't be that outspoken mm. i just became you know when i was in spain because basically i was the only black person around but you're beyonce to them just they just love you because you're black for no reason it's fetishism but <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, so you're all your fetishized at that point. <laughs> you know? Right? You're like, you don't know what I should feel disrespected or I should feel complimented. Like, no, yeah. this, 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 right? So you were talking about how America shaped you, right? So mm-hmm. what were those pivotal moments living mm-hmm. in the States and living in New York that really molded you and shaped you? Um, you know, expand on that a little bit more. Um, I think you touched base on that, but it's really that the fact that as a black person in the in the US, you can speak and not get fired, like not get consequences and things mm. like that. And that was very new to mm. me because in yeah. Belgium, you cannot do that. In Spain, I was the only one. Mm. So whatever I was saying, they were just like, yes, you know? <laughs> so, and mm. in the US, you realize that whatever I say, it's okay. I, I mean, it's not always okay, but at least I can say it. I can mm. be vocal about it. I can like call people out. Right. And I will always, you know, just... I think the culture, I think New York is also very particular and other states <laughs> are very different. Yeah. But, 
Yeah. It might be a little different in the South, but yes, New York is definitely like that. Now I came from the South, like... Uh, so you know. So you know, though. No, but in New York, you just have the freedom to be you, and then that's it, you know? People won't ask questions if you feel like dressing like this. Yeah, go for it. And mind you, I was working at the mm. once or something that is supposed to be very political, this, this, but because it's in New York, if I come dressed yeah. like this because I feel like it today... And I want to, you know, put my whatever. Yeah, I want to have my hair like this. No one was going to say anything, you know. And yeah, also seeing yeah, that there are yeah. many black women around me who were empowered and who had, you know, those big jobs, you know. They were like head of communications at the UN mm. or like CEO of whatever. I'll be like, oh, so us black women, we can also achieve that, which in Belgium, you don't, you don't see that. You definitely don't see that. Wow. It's only white men mm. up there. Mm. And I picked up on so many like role models that was like, okay, I like who she is and I just want to become like her. So I'm going to like do everything for her to be my mentor. And um, seeing that this was possible yeah. for people who look like me, even though we don't have the exact same background. Yes, she's born and raised in the US. Yeah. But still, at the end of the day, she's also a black woman. Like to them, she is needed. That's it. <laughs> There's mm. no difference. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. but there's, there's solidarity. There's that solidarity. It's so um, profound that you just said this, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. because, you know, we are in season two now. And most of the guests that we've sort of, you know, spoken to other dynamic women just like you, mm-hmm. the common thread existed where representation representation matter yeah. and what yeah. motivated them to enter the field that they're in or even their success was them seeing a black woman or African yeah. woman that looked just like them that was in certain spaces a certain position mm. it opened their eyes and their minds like oh my gosh like women who look like me women who come from my background can actually succeed in this space can succeed yeah. in this field yeah. and can be well respected can mm-hmm, be well renowned mm-hmm. recognized you know mm-hmm. um, and I feel like that was sort of the mm-hmm. spark that they needed to yeah. truly help them mm-hmm. continue building on their confidence mm-hmm. yeah. and truly chase with their mm-hmm. passion like unapologetically you know mm. and i think that is so important for black mm-hmm. people especially black women yeah that role model for yeah. us it's everything yeah we don't gotta yeah. like you said you just did the key thing you just said we don't have to come from the same culture background they mm-hmm. that you're black some mm-hmm. of our live experiences are the same because when yeah. the white people look at us they're not gonna say oh bitch are you from congo or patient. no you chocolate like she is oh black okay we all put yeah. the same freaking melting pot a hundred percent they put all of us you could be an upper, yeah. upper class black person a high class black. we all gonna yeah. be in the same oh, melting yeah. pot so that's all they see yeah. That's why it's important for us, right, to pay it forward. And, like, and yeah. that was the point of our podcast, A Series of Ends. Like, you know, because Benji and I, yeah. we've done our own thing in our respective careers and in different areas of our lives. And when we meet so many mm-hmm. dynamic, amazing mm-hmm. Black women, African women, yeah. they're just doing yeah. amazing things across the board. And we're looking at you like, mm-hmm. why the hell are we not amplifying these women and bringing visibility to the yeah. amazing people like Elizabeth, you know? And how can we connect? connect mm-hmm. these women yeah. to each other because that community yeah. of sisterhood and that solidarity mm-hmm. is so important to reaffirm mm-hmm. exactly. our power to reaffirm mm-hmm. our worth our value that yes we are capable to, of changing this space we are capable of trailblazing this shit we are capable of revolutionizing and turning this whole shit upside mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. in this goddamn UN space okay yep. because I see 
my sis at the top of head of communication and she's my role model so mm-hmm. i am like we, we here she has my back mm-hmm. when we're in these spaces and in these mm-hmm. meetings and they're coming for me i know i have mm-hmm. an ally that's gonna jump in you know yeah. what i'm saying and, yeah. and help and help yeah. me that is important i think yeah. that's that's part is really what made me want to be also like aspiring me to like do what i'm doing now is that okay these women were that for me mm. i want to be that for someone as well you know mm. <laughs> i want to like inspire someone and like just be able to motivate and then give that support yeah. to someone that i'm not necessarily related to that yes we'll never have met uh, like you were saying um and that's why i was like okay i need to do something and something that has concrete impact and mm-hmm. you know this big organization we do a lot of work yes but i was liking the tangible impact of the things that we're doing because you're out there in the office you're in new york mm-hmm. in midtown mm-hmm. you don't know what's happening in, in colombia or in yeah. sierra yeah. leone directly like right <laughs> <laughs> <At all. laughs> <There's> no <laughs> so being there was like i like the work yes but i don't think this is 100% me i feel like i was starting also to understand uh, by the way that's when in the US that I had that identity really like type of like crisis because they made me guess who I was right like am I Belgian am I random and stuff like nice, that and I was like okay let me like sit down nice. and try to figure like about my culture and I started watching all these documentaries about mm-hmm. 1994 and Rwanda and things like that and when I understood this one I understood that like recently in my 20s what really happened because uh, you know the parents are suffering from the trauma of it so they yeah. don't really speak about it same for my brothers exactly. um And yeah. when I realized how many pregnant mm. women were in 1994 who were actually killed with their babies, and that for some reason, I don't know, just like God, or mm. by miracle, my mom and I made it, you know, when there were so many chances every yeah. day. She was like, every day, mm-hmm. I thought that would be today, you know, <laughs> but then we made it uh, yeah. all the way to, yeah. I was born at the yeah. end of June and then the genocide ended, ended early July. And when I realized I was like, I was, mm. you know, everyone has a has a purpose and I feel like, mine is way bigger than i think it is right mine is not just to be sitting in an office and writing cute reports and doing like design work and things like that like mine is that yeah i'm on all the thousand of like children who didn't make it in 94 i made it so yeah. i think whatever mm. you know whatever idea i'm having in my head or whatever calling i'm having i just need to take it no, don't need to question it and things like that yeah. yeah and that's how at the end of 2019 yeah. you know i realized that i wanted to leave new york and you know you imagine telling your african parents mm. you know i'm leaving the un i don't want to be in new york anymore and they're like where are you going are you coming back to europe no i'm going to africa they're like <laughs> <laughs> My child, are you crazy? <laughs> they say they say we did not escape genocide for this. I'm I'm curious though on the flip side, right? Like what was that conversation like with your parents because I'm putting myself in the shoes of your mom who is out here thanking her lucky stars and praying to all the gods mm-hmm. she knows that she was able to escape this fate, right? Mm-hmm. Came raised her child, gone through a divorce but still persisting, right? And mm-hmm. now you're out here you're flourishing, you're in university finishing school as a parent you're like oh my god i did a couple of things right and then your child mm-hmm. says you know the place where you still probably have trauma and nightmares about that's where i'm going back to like what was that conversation like like what what did she express what did your dad express i know he was there and i know your brothers were kind of there as well but like 
what was that for for her with with mm-hmm. you guys having that conversation? Elizabeth, quickly, did your, was your mom a West African mother who says, "Ah, do you want to kill me?" <laughs> Why are you like? My mom, she's Why very you quiet. Like... You know, the way she deals with things is that she'll show you that she's disappointed, but she won't scream. She just like in that quiet thing, which I think is even creepier. That's the worst. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> she'll sit and be like, and you know, I mean, New York. She's in Belgium. We have like whole that time zone difference and. I'm calling her, it's very early in the morning, and she's like, uh-huh, mm-hmm. And I'm like, can you say something, please? Like, I know she's disappointed. I know she's mad because what she's doing right. in the meantime is that she's calling all the family members to call me. <laughs> <laughs> she called all my aunts. She's like, can you talk to her, please? So every day I will have, like, a new phone call from everywhere in the world, you know, like, so are you sure about your decision? Because oh, I've heard that, no, no, no. And I, I think I had, like, 20, 30 people calling me, and everyone was like, same story. No, I'm not changing my wow. mind. I'm not changing my mind. Mm-hmm. And then you had my dad on the other side because mm-hmm. I had explained them that I want, you know, venture into entrepreneurship and actually doing something concrete, you know, um, on the African continent. And so right. my mom doesn't understand entrepreneurship. She has a stable job. She makes her money. That's it. You know, pays the bills and that's it. Mm-hmm. But my dad, who's been an entre- right. entrepreneur his whole life, yeah. I think I had it for because he understands it. You know, he understands that thing of like... Mm. You want yeah. to take risks for yourself, you know, and he knows that the reward is way greater than any other stability or security that you had in the past, right? Mm. So he was somehow advocating for me. And you have to understand that at that time, me and my dad had almost no relationship because remember, like he left when I was a teenager, but mm. we had communication, but I took it as a very transactional thing that I need money for this, right. send me this. I decided that I want to live in Spain, send me money for this. <laughs> that, you know? Yeah. So it was very, very transactional. And I saw him as a bank account, you know, as a like yeah. free bank account that is different. <laughs> that I can just like tap in when yeah. I need it. <laughs> yeah. Run me my money, boom. <laughs> Run me my money. <laughs> and so also that desire for me, like to to just like come back to Rwanda or just uh, in general was that, you know, I want to actually have more than this type of relationship mm. yes i want to create impact and you know um, start yeah. something but i also want to work on the relationship with my dad because he was such a great man for me until i was 14 and i hate the situation we're at now mm. so and him understanding that and him having my back yeah i think somehow it calmed down my mom that she was like okay maybe that's not that bad it is still bad but <laughs> At least right. she's going to be with right. him. And, you know, this. And my mom, she, she prays a lot. So she's just like, okay, if it, that's it, that's it, then that's it. Yeah. You know, God knows better than me. So I cannot yeah. say anything. <laughs> mm. African mothers, just move her from the continent. It doesn't matter. She's the same person. Having, who am I? If Jesus has said, literally, okay. literally. Um, and before coming to Rwanda, I did a small transition. I had a friend who was going to Ghana, and I was like, Let me try out Ghana first. So mm. I went from New York to Ghana, I lived for six months in Ghana, and that was like the first time living in Africa for me. Um, and I was in Ghana, and so I was literally there like a white kid, you know, discovering things because I had been to Rwanda maybe you know a few times, but only on vacation, and uh, also. I, even though I wasn't in Africa, I still felt like a foreigner, you know? People will see me and then be like, oh, yeah. you, you're very branded East African, so, uh, you know, you're not like us. There's some people who tell me that I'm exotic to them, and I'm like, but like 90% of the population in Ghana is as dark as me, so how am I exotic? Who look alike? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I was there like a month ago. I'm like, yeah, they they just as chocolate. I don't understand. That don't make no sense. I think maybe it's the features, not necessarily the the. Maybe the features. Maybe the features. That's what they were explaining me. And then uh, the friend that I was with, so she was mixed. And so we were leaving everything together, right? We took the my first design class actually there in Accra. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're living together. And you also, you know, I had to experience her version of Accra and my version of Accra is that people will treat us differently by default because they see the light-skinned one and then the dark-skinned one. So they assume that she's the one who has money. She's the one who's more educated, this and this. When it's not always the case. And so I'll have cases where mm-hmm. the teacher... Uh, at the training center, we'll just we'll be in the same room and he'll just address her, but talking about me, you know, be like, oh, can she? No, 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 and I'm like, but I'm right here in the room, and it was like it, so many times where like he will ignore me and things like that, and I'm like, I expect that from the white men back in the US. That's totally normal, you know. He should ignore me, as he sh- yeah. I mean, he shouldn't, but like, I'm not surprised, right? But then seeing that from like my fellow African brother. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> it be your own people. Ah. It be your own people. Let me tell you, that is is the worst. Like, you're looking at them like, brother. Literally, communism ended a long time ago. Please, I'm gonna need you to keep up with 21st century and where we are right now. Like, you know, it's true. I mean, it, it, it's the most saddest thing because, like you just said, Elizabeth, it's it's easier. Mm-hmm. To, I think it's easier to take it from outsiders. Yeah than it is from your own people. Yeah. I think it, it's even more hurtful mm-hmm. when it comes from your own people, like, that are trying to create this, like, segregation mm-hmm. or discrimination based on, you know, what you look like compared to your other counterpart mm-hmm. who is mixed mm-hmm. race or a lot of skin, you know, heal your, like, look at them yeah. like, are you kidding me? I have to deal with this shit with the white people. Mm-hmm. Nah, come and come deal with it with you two. I'm mm-hmm. thinking we're, we're supposed to be on the same page here. But yeah. So how did you navigate that experience in Accra? Honestly, that made me like not like the city that much. I was I was tired of it, you know. I was like, here we go again, you know. Even though the city is amazing, like there's a lot to do and mm-hmm. a lot of things to learn, especially in terms of like fashion and design. Yeah. But it just made my whole experience so bad. <laughs> um, and yeah, from there I decided, okay, maybe I thought that any country in Africa would be home but let me experience home home and let me go to Rwanda mm. again my, my mom was comfortable with the idea mm. of me going to Rwanda because in the meantime I told her you know I'm just going there for 10 months trying on something studying something small but then I'm going back mm. to school I'm going to get my PhD yeah. so she's like ah, yeah. education I was drafting applications to something in Boston and things like that and I'll just show it to her and I'll be like you see I'm actually doing it mm-hmm. she's like okay that's fine <laughs> We're still on track. We're still on track. <laughs> so how was how? Okay, so you you left Ghana, Accra. You're like, you know what? I'm going to Rwanda. I want to test out the you know the the space or the context and see the idea that I have if it's going to work. How is it going to be? So when you first got into Rwanda, walk us through you know that first step. Did you get there? Did you get like a regular job or did you move straight into like your your own personal uh, mm-hmm. company? Um, so just walk us through what was that like and you know, yeah, what was that? What was the experience like? So, yeah, I think I, I forgot to mention, um, I had that the chance um, that when I decided to live in New York, my boss was like, I think you're really still a great asset to the team. So we're just switching your contract to be remote and on a part-time basis. Ah, okay. And you can work from anywhere. So ah. me, I was like, it's okay. Why do I figure out what, you know, my business is going to buy and things like that? I still have a security, which also was reassuring my mom, you know? Like, my mom would be like, yeah, she's in Africa, she wants to start a business, but she still works for the UN. Yeah. (laughs) They love them names. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. She's not homeless. 
She's working for the UN. Um, so yeah, I was in Denison working remotely part-time. So when I came to Rwanda, still same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I didn't start the business directly. Because uh, I have to know something that for mm-hmm. me... So I wasn't going to drink COVID, right? From February to July. Mm-hmm. And I, I started writing a book. When I was in the US, they made me understand that I was different and I needed to figure out my identity. I was like, let me write that book to try yeah. to figure out yeah. my identity. And maybe the answer, what I thought would be the answer, but which is mm-hmm. not the case. And the answer should be in Rwanda. Why it makes sense. Like I'm coming back. Mm. I've lived in places and then I'm coming back. So that's where right. everything mm-hmm. is. Fun part of it is that yeah. I haven't been able to write a single page since I moved to Rwanda. So I'm here since, it's been three years almost, um, since August 2020. And I haven't been able mm-hmm. to write a page because I think I had a lot of expectations for the countries and for the answers that the country should bring. It did bring some mm. answers, but mm. not necessarily all positive, right? So I'm here initially, I'm trying to find myself. Mm. I'm still working remotely. Yeah. I'm launching my business because I understand that fashion, because my love for just design, graphic design in general is what I love. I want to do fashion. Yeah. Um, but then I face that thing where mm. I think all of us, when you go back home, is that, yes, you're one of us, but you're not one of us. And mind you, I speak the language. Yeah. 200% because my mom made it a thing that even though you grew up in, in Europe as soon as you reach mm. the house you speak in Kinyaranda and then I don't want to hear your French it just this house is Kinyaranda so mm. I, I speak it fluently yeah. I can read wow. it and despite that people made me very feel like yeah you're still you're an outsider mm. and so you have that phase where you just arrive for the first six months where you love it because you're like you're there as a tourist you know you're like you go out, you do this, you do tourism activities and stuff like that. Yeah. And when you really get to the professional world and like to understand how mentalities and stuff work, you get so disappointed. To be honest, I've never felt as depressed and so down as yeah. I felt here. There's no other place that made me feel like that. Wow. And 2021, when it had been one year that I was here, that's when I had like mm. my biggest like mental breakdown ever. Wow. And for me, I was like, how? This is supposed mm. to be my Eldorado, you know, my my place, my home, my everything with my people. Yeah. Yeah. How didn't I feel like that with the Spanish people that I don't have anything in common with them, for example? <laughs> right. Um, so it was a huge reality check, to be honest. It really made me realize mm. that home is 200% not a place. I thought that home could also be a, you know, a person, mm. like let's say where my mom and my mm. brothers are, but... Even though they're the people that you love the most, they can disappoint you as well. So you can't put like that thing of like defining home by a place, by a person. And I sat down and I realized that, you know, I'm going to be my own home, you know. I'm the only thing that I can control. I can control my emotions. I can mm. do this and this, how I react to things. And I'm the most stable thing <laughs> to myself that I know. Yeah. Is that one specific experience? That's a, a combination of so many things you've uh, been through that sort of leads you to that final breaking point? Is there one thing that sort of, that broke like the camel's, like the show that broke the camel's back for you? Uh, I mean, it's going to sound cliche, but <laughs> it was definitely a breakup that I had here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is exactly what I'm saying. Binja, is a hit home. No, please. <laughs> I just want better for us. Go, go ahead, Elizabeth. Go, go ahead, Elizabeth. Um, I think that was the triggering element. It wasn't just him for sure, but he just showed me everything mm-hmm. that I was wrong with me being in Rwanda or like me adjusting the, to the random mentality. Because mm. you have to understand that after New York, I was the most outspoken person. So what? If you bother me, I'm going to say it. I'm going like, to yeah. use my voice to even like voice other people's right. problems, you know? And now I'm, I'm back here. Yep. And then yep. Maybe like 
I mean, you, if you know anything about Rwandans, Rwandans are very known to be like quiet and calm and don't talk a lot and speak like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even as opposed to Ghanaians, so Ghanaians were still yeah. outspoken. So, and then I come here and I'm, I'm oh yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize them in the quiet side. No. Absolutely not. So I'm out here and I'm I became all of this person who's very empowered, very confident. And I realized that I'm too much, I'm really too much for a random, mm. you know. And everything, all the mm. journey that I had done so far till I was 25, basically 26, understanding who I was and being proud of my skin tone, yeah. of my body, of everything. Mm. Everything crashed down in Rwanda. Yeah. Like, poof, poof, poof. All the work that you did, let's go back to square one. And of course, a man, a man triggered that, but then I think the society as well really much like enabled that as well. Yeah. And uh, that really led to, wow, I'm actually 26, 20, I was 27 um, there. And I have to start all over, all over again, you know, because I don't love myself anymore. I'm disgusted by who I am. Yeah. Uh, they made me feel like this and then do I even belong here and this and this and from that point uh, you know I was talking to my parents a lot and my mom was you know telling me that I saw that coming of course they always see that coming <laughs> I remember that you could have just keep that between you and the Holy Ghost you didn't need to tell me and tell me I told you so <laughs> mother, mother was in the prayer room she was in the and upper room honestly where I am at now is that I realized that it does a lot of these things, you know, affects your personal relationships, your professional relationship, your business and whatever. Hmm. But I just decided to not let it, you know, define me that much or that not impact my actions. You know, if I feel like right. this is my calling, you know, this is what kind of business I want to do. This is what I want, how I want to inspire people. I'm going to do it regardless of yeah. how you're going to treat me, you know? Because I can't, I can't control how you're going to treat me, but I can mm-hmm. pr- control, again, my reaction to it. So, But I'm not going to lie that, you know, I've talked to a lot of people um, just from the diaspora who came back to Africa in general. And, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. something is that we do romanticize it a lot in general on social media and stuff is that, yes. oh, yeah, Africa is all this. Everyone should come back. And then, and now I was like that during the first three months. I was telling all my friends back in Belgium to come back. Now when they ask me, I'm like, yeah. stay where you are. So I actually want to pivot us a little bit to Benabose as a brand, right? So you got to Kigali, you start working in Rwanda and like, let's talk about it. Like, I understand you were in design. I understand that's kind of something that is in your lane, but what actually sparked the beginning of this brand for you? And like, what was it like to actually physically start mm-hmm. a business in Rwanda? Because right now Rwanda will tell us, oh, it's four to six hours to start up a business in Kigali. And I'm like, wow, they're so advanced. So you tell us like from somebody who has been on the ground, like, what is it practically? Chashi is laughing. I don't have hope in this, but like, let me know. <laughs> Let me know practically, like, what was it like? To be honest, there's really good PR. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to give that this amazing PR because same, when I was in the US, when I was in Belgium, I was like, this looks so easy and everything is facilitated and na na na. Yeah. But when you get on the ground, mm. uh, it is it is easy to open a business in the sense that it's an online process within a couple of hours, that's where you have your registration form. But what it is to have my registration documents, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I have it, but then do you give me the tools to actually know how to maintain that business and grow that business? Like that's the thing that yeah. I wasn't given to and that I wish really that somehow I was given at that time. Mm. Uh, because even if you studied business in the Western mm. world, you have to know that you're going to work with people who grew up here and who have a completely different mentality. So 
from the seamstresses, for example, that I onboarded, it was a shift that I had to make be to like, we really don't have the same background. And yeah, I don't want to come as that white yeah. savior, you know, I'm coming from Europe, so I'm all this and this. Yeah. But I also want them to do better. And unfortunately, yeah. like, mm. we're so nice with the white men, but we're not nice to each other. And like you were saying, it's that... <laughs> it's everything is very transactional so speak on it oh my god speak on it yes even in the business thing is that i'm gonna like be nice to you for five minutes but once i get paid i'm gonna dip and you know forget about me you know i give all my i just trust people you know i don't know and my mom keeps telling me yeah you're too naive I always put it this way. I say, I trust you until mm-hmm. you give me a reason not to trust you. Because mm-hmm. why would I come yeah. not trusting? That means I'm, I'm already presuming that exactly. you have an ulterior motive. That to me is, again, I'm not here for mm-hmm. the mental jujitsu. Like, I just want to be able exactly. to get something done. I'm not coming thinking mm-hmm. about your motives. Your, like, no, let me just, can mm-hmm. we just work together yeah. to get this done? No, I think there's a lot uh, of, I had to adapt a lot to like uh, some of the um, cultural mindset, I would say. But um, I've also, I think, been able to have a positive impact on the people that I work with in the sense that, you know, I tried as much as I can to give them my work ethic and to make that understand that we need to stop living up to the stereotype that Europeans have about us and things like that, you know? Yeah. Because we just give them something to talk about again. It's like, oh, see, I told you. And I realized that, for example, you know, the seamstresses that I have... um, I work with them and then for me, I'm doing something amazing. I'm creating jobs. Those are mostly women from the rural areas and things like that. But still, they play you. So I was like, mm-hmm. what am I doing this for? Well, I told them, you know, I'm doing this, yes, for me, but also for you guys. I have an exit plan. If things go south at any moment, I can yeah. think it's an eight-hour flight to Brussels and I can start again. I can start my life again, right? Passport still <laughs> exactly. works. And I think once they understood that and once they saw the motivation that I have behind my business and the vision that I have, it just became contagious. You know, so the, I see that people that they were a year and a half ago is not who they are today. But I wish there was more really like sort of like toolkit or a starter pack, you know, of like this is how business works um, in Rwanda. And mostly let's let's be honest women in business you know how does business work for women yeah because when i arrived here you know i was working for you and women you see the country is top 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 in most of the gender equality yeah. things and stuff like that but then that's mostly like at the government level when you get get down to private sector and things like that that's not a reality and the few other women in business that you meet mm. they're like yeah it's so amazing is this and this and again we need to stop lying to each other because <laughs> Oh my God, please and thank you. Give me, give, that's why I said be honest and be very practical because the amount of people who are like, oh my God, yeah, I've been running this for six years and I'm like, okay, let's talk about your profit and loss. Like how, let me talk about your EBITDA and they're like, yeah, I don't really have those numbers. Huh? How you been here for six years then sis? Yeah, make it make sense i think the part of the company of being a woman in businesses is, is a whole nother thing that most of us don't talk about. Uh, or like maybe romanticize it again too much. Mm. Uh, but I've done so many, you know, scenarios, for example, people who, you know, fake that they want to invest in your business, but they just want to sleep with you. And if they see that there's no response, then, oh, you know, <laughs> I've, I've had so many of those. And a man won't experience that, you know, if they have an investor coming, they're actually interested and they're going to invest, right? And then now every time a man shows yeah. interest in the business, I always have to think about does he just want to go on a date or is it serious? Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, right. And it's it, it's so undermining and just disrespectful. Yeah. I think yeah. Yeah. you know, as women who mm-hmm. articulate smart, have these dreams, this passion, taking it from the ground up, like putting the hard work, you know, and working extremely hard for somebody to look at your your baby, your passion, and tell you, yes, I will. I'm interested in funding it if you will go on a date with me. Like, what the hell? Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Are you kidding me right now? So, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. I mean, I think Benja and I, we've been raving about, like, mm-hmm. you know, Barabo saying, like, the products and just the whole aesthetic is just, like, up to, like, you know, mm-hmm. up to par and love the passion behind, you know, your your company and your brand and just love what you stand for. Mm-hmm. I just want to, like, in your own words, right, what makes Barbosa like, such a unique brand compared to other counterparts? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what makes you guys stand out and what is mm. your niche? I mean, unfortunately, I think it's not as visible as I want it to be as of today, but I'm working on it, so bear with me. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's coming it's coming but the the pieces you make it's coming <laughs> thank you i think the um, the i don't know if you can call it the unique selling point or what's unique about the brand comes down to the name itself you know where i will say again that suits everyone that appeals everyone i really want everyone to see themselves in whatever i create i don't know when you mm. go to levi's some most that's my problem i go the jeans fits you know here at the waist, but then my bus can barely, you know, it's, <laughs> so yeah. when, when I said I was going to do fashion, I was going to make sure that I'm creating something for all bodies, for different skin tones, so that everyone can see themselves yeah. in at least one of the items, you know, that's why I even have that um, custom order option, mm. that if you don't see what you like, we're going to have something customized yeah. just for you, according to your taste, who you are, uh, and stuff like that. Mm. So I think the something that's very uh, core to what I will say is the um, inclusion parts, making sure that everyone, you know, sees themselves in the brand. Yeah. Another thing is definitely the innovation because I'm always thinking about how can I make this, you know, look as new as as new, you know, <laughs> making it fresher than fresh all the time. So just trying to keep up right, with like yeah. all these tech trends and things like that. And I'm launching a few of them this year. So I'll say like the innovation mm. is something that is, you know, very, very, very important to me. And um, the sustainability as well, uh, because I think that it's cool to dress yeah. to dress up, but it's even better if you can do it in a responsible way. Could we talk a little bit about, about the sustainability component, Elizabeth? Because I saw when I was, again, uh, doing a little bit of research on you, I saw that you actually go to some length, more than most designers do, to actually maintain that level of sustainability. I think you work with folks in Tanzania. I know you kind of get like um, yeah. pumped, you know, banana leaves mm-hmm. from different regions. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think for me that was part of what made it so unique and something that you don't really see a lot of African designers do in a conscious, like deliberate way. I mean, when I ventured in design fashion, it was, yes, my love for designing, but you know, I also, when you're in New York and you realize that almost no African brands are represented at the fashion week and all that, you realize that there's a huge problem. Mm. And I decided that I wanted to do fashion, but not just that fashion that they, they expect me to do, right? The one that's we're just doing wax and it's cute and then we sell it in the market somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do that tribal thing we love. Um, I decided that I wanted to do fashion, but to get a seat at the table of like those big fashion brands and those big fashion events that happen. So when you look at in 2020, if you want to do fashion, you need to like really go, you need to go the extra mile. I cannot just take a kitenge and then make a dress and then sell it. No, I need to like create a story around it. I need right, to know right. so that I know what I'm doing. 
and that I'm innovating and that I'm being creative in everything that I do. Mm. So having that in mind, uh, right? you know, I wasn't, it was, for me, it was normal. Then go and research, okay, how can I make this product actually organic? If I say it's organic, I'm going to make it organic. Like H&M can say it's organic yeah. and then lie to us because it's H&M already. They already have the money and stuff like that. But me, but I was, if I say I'm doing organic, I need to actually do it. Mm. Make sure I research, learn, and then follow the entire process. Um, right. So I think that's the main reason, my main motivation behind it. And again, you know, when I explain the business and I say, you know, it's a clothing brand, but it's not just a clothing brand. And people start understanding the whole sustainability part and innovation and technology that's coming. They always sit with me and they're like, is it just you? Or is there, do you have a co-founder? Is there a man behind it? When I come and I say I make clothes, like in summary, they say, oh yeah, it makes sense. You're a woman. You're supposed to do cosmetic, uh, fashion, accessories and things like that. Right. But then once they understand the whole thing they're like it doesn't mm. make sense that it's just you um who's doing this right yeah so i've had that question asked to me at least um, more than five times already this year and i'm starting to get tired of it <laughs> um but i would say that's the ambition that i have for the the brand again i think is like bigger than me bigger than i thought i could achieve because initially i thought i was just gonna make mm. two dresses for women when i left new york i thought that's what i was gonna do but then when i realized the potential and then the creativity that i have mm. i sat down with myself and i'm like no mm. i'm just again not gonna listen to them and just you know follow the yeah. line that i'm supposed to follow and then take the risk that i have to take but then if Absolutely. tomorrow where i was to become the next you know the african nike i won't be surprised because you know i know <laughs> period 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 let me tell you period elizabeth so how does it feel right even even where you currently are right you're creating opportunities you're creating jobs for people and for women. How does it feel to be put to be in that position, you know, of being an employer and truly being mm. intentional about the team that you're putting together and how are you paying that forward? Like, and I, I'm sure you, mm -hmm. you must feel so proud of yourself to be somebody yeah. who is creating that lane of opportunity for other women in Rwanda. Honestly, it feels, it feels amazing. And I'll say that I'm very proud of myself, you know, that I didn't take the easy road and in that office job and get paid and you know just take myself on vacation and take myself out to restaurants whenever I want to I decided that whatever money I was making I wanted to invest into people who look like me and people who haven't been given the same chances and opportunities that I've been given you know again is that I've benefited for, from so many things just by growing up in Belgium and I want to make sure that's people can also benefit from it by extension, <laughs> you know, not directly, but, you know, indirectly. And honestly, to have that power to sit and be like, okay, when I'm hiring someone, yes, I'm giving clear advantage to women. I'm not even going to lie to it <laughs> when you <laughs> But it is what it is, though. It is what it is. You know, I mean, statistically, money goes longer in a woman's hand than it does in a man's. So, period. I think you're doing the right thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I yeah. just had to like sit with myself oh, and yeah. be like, you know, other people do it shamelessly. You know, they hire just like their fellow uh, Scandinavian people because it's their people and stuff like that. And won't even question it. Why do we always have to feel bad about ourselves for just helping each yeah. other out, you know? So for now, since yep. I have that yep. seat, I'm going to like maximize it. <laughs> yes, yes. I love it. So, so one thing that we do talk um, very openly about on our podcast here, the series of mm -hmm. ants is money, 
right? You've alluded to, you know, paying women equitably, paying them enough. And I've actually mentioned a couple of times how important it is to ensure that, like, obviously we're making a living, that we're able to survive, and that, again, money goes further in a woman's hand than it does in a man's hand. So let's talk a little bit about money for you. So you started off with your internship in New York. Like, how much were you making there? And I know then you transitioned into, like, your full-time mm-hmm. but still remote contract um, with the UN in Ghana mm-hmm. and then now in Kigali. Um, so how has it been in terms of your finances? And if you're not comfortable saying the number, you can give us a range. That's totally fine. The goal here is just to kind of yeah. have that transparency so that somebody mm-hmm. else in Belgium who's a Rundis, who's like, oh, even me, I want to come mm-hmm. home. Let me see. I'm following the path. Mm-hmm. I see where she went, how she went. Um But now let's talk about dollars and cents because my mother is going to ask me how I'm going to survive. At least I have a place of reference. You know what I mean? And then also in terms of Berabose, I would love you to talk a little bit about financing. You've alluded to the fact that you have, you know, men who come in and out with different um, motives, so to speak. But like, how has it actually been in terms of fundraising? Have you been fully self-funded or have you got an external investors as well? Um, So about, so I did the internship for three months. and then and for another year and a half, basically, mm-hmm. in New York, I was just, you know, working and just getting paid as a regular staff. And mm-hmm. still, as of today, in Berabose, it's still me just financing it. Um, and we'll say that, you know, mm-hmm. when you people like, even in Belgium, when they ask me how much I make uh, in New York, you tell them, yeah, I'm almost like making 5K. But then when you think about New York, 5K is like, it's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It really yeah, is not so that much money. That is, that is all gone to your rent. Rent and then transport <laughs> and then that's it. So uh, I'll, even my people in Brussels, yeah. I have to make them understand that the value that you give to money is not the same uh, over there. Um, and then, of course, when I moved, my salary was reduced because uh, I was remote um, and uh, also part-time. Uh, but I've been able to fund uh, most of the business, I mean, also with other savings uh, with that. But I will say that as of now, I've exhausted I, I exhausted any financial like finance that I could give to the business. And so since last year, I've, you know, started, yeah. you know, that whole fundraising thing a little bit. And, you know, they tell you that, oh, you have an amazing idea around innovation and sustainability. Like, don't worry, you know, the money's going to come by itself. But yeah. again, something that they don't tell you is that if I pitch and then another guy my age, black guy, same, like, you know, he's just a man. This <laughs> is just only different. Yeah. Go and, and pitch his idea. Mm. The response is, is different. And his I'll say more than 50% has more chances to get the money and that's me. Wow. And I work here in Kigali. There is a hub called Norskin Kigali House and it's basically a hub for uh, entrepreneurs um, and startups in the East Africa region, right? It's originally from Sweden and then they, they moved also. They also have one here. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is around, you know, creating an ecosystem yeah. for startups, for people who are working towards impact mm-hmm. and things like that. But when you look at the startups again yep. who are being funded, uh, it's mostly like men-led startups mm. or even the women one who are funded yeah. is that I need, again, I'm not in, enough of a minority to them. Mm. That's what I was saying. Another thing in my experience here is that, mm. yes, you're women, yes, you're African woman, but mm. if I can find like an African woman who was born and raised in Rwanda and who's Muslim, she's the minority. You're not... <laughs> Oh wow! Oh, so 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 you gotta be like a minority of minorities. <laughs> then you're like, oh yeah, she's unique enough to support. 
That struggle is real. It's all for the marketing for me. <laughs> wow. Do you know? You know what's crazy is that I, I wanted to really talk about Norskin because I saw like whoever yeah. runs yeah. their socials, whoever's running their marketing top tier. Um, I also mm -hmm. saw that I know that you did a talk with them and I was like, you know, this is interesting because I would love for us to even have like a quarter of what they're offering um, here in Kinshasa because we have potential, mm -hmm. but like the organization and the corruption just completely messes things up for us. But now let's let's just think about it in, in, in what you're saying here. A couple of days ago, we had talked to somebody in logistics. Um, she's based in Abuja, I believe. And she was just literally saying like, it would be so yeah. good for just women to support women. Mm -hmm. Like, like if you're just mm -hmm. a woman who has gone into entrepreneurship and you've made it to just be able to say, you know what, you mm -hmm. show up, you're a woman, you have a good idea. Mm -hmm. Here's a thousand dollars. I'm going to write the check. Okay. Yes. Right. You want to say eh, it might not work out. Oh, she's not checking off all these boxes. Like, is the idea sound? Okay. Yes, it is. Does the woman seem trustworthy because yeah. men the support yeah. that men give other men mm -hmm. <laughs> versus the support that women give other women oh my guy you will it's 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 not matched and so you know when we were talking to her she she's when she said that i really took a step back and i said to myself that's actually very true you know we don't give each other passes you know mm -hmm. because we say oh we are all women and i and obviously like in Mm -hmm. The panels that you've been able to pitch to, I want to say, I don't know if it's always mm -hmm. only been men or a couple of women in there. But, you know, I always feel like to to circumvent that yeah. issue of like you have to be a minority of, of minorities mm -hmm. for you to be deserving, mm -hmm. you know, regardless of how innovative your idea is, is if we had more mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. just ready to write the check, you know. I can't tell you how many times in consulting my boss went out and came back mm -hmm. with a new client just like that. And I say, ah. How? And he's like, yeah, oh, no, exactly. we went sailing. We went golfing. Yeah. We went skiing. Oh, I went to this ski resort thing and this happened. And now we have a client. And I'm just like, so this man didn't ask for your resume. <laughs> he didn't ask. But here you are with money in the bank from a relationship you created. What would it be like if yeah. women just had that level of confidence mm -hmm. in each other, you know? And I think mm -hmm. it's killing me that that's, that's, that's your mm -hmm. experience there at Norris. Because, or at least overall in terms of like that ecosystem. I think that there's, you know, we all know there's a boy, boys club and, oh man, the, the boys club here. And like you said, they actually meet each other for a drink, for golfing, for this and this. They have throw a couple like jokes around women and stuff like that. And then at the end of the day, they'll still steal the deal and then give the money, right? Yeah. But in my case, I have to go above and beyond preparing oh, yeah. the best pitch deck to this and this. And yet you're like, yeah, mm. you know, that's it. And at the end of the day, they still just keep it as it is fashion. And um, we're not sure she needs the money that much because at the end yeah. of the day, she's coming from the diaspora. So <laughs> I'm not in need of the money. Yeah. No. She don't really need the money like that. Exactly. She don't really, really need the money like that. So, oh, man. Quickly, right? On the same line, um, I know you mentioned how, you know, coming back to Rwanda, identity crisis, you feel like you had to start all over again in, you know, in regaining your voice and rebuilding your confidence. So I would like to know, like, how has, you know, you know, founding, you know, mm -hmm. establishing, running Barabose, um, helped you find your voice again? Um, I think my team, to be honest, uh, we're not a lot, actually a team of seven with me, eight. 
is the one who's been able to kind of mm. like rebuild that empowerment that I that I used to have before coming here. Because when I see, you know, the impact that I have on them and just, you know, mm. just how grateful and then how they work. And I see that my energy is very much contagious and my work ethic. I'm like, okay, I'm not doing all of this for nothing. <laughs> you know, there's still people who are being yeah. directly impacted and who see, you know, who see the behind the scenes and who supports me, you know? Yes, they're not gonna yeah. like, give me the, the money mm, and stuff yeah. like that, you know, we're a team, so we work together to make this bigger. But I, there's nothing that's yeah. like the appreciation mm. that I get from the other women I work with. I see that I'm able to, you know, to inspire them and that yeah. they're choosing. I had I have that girl who initially started as an intern. She's from Nigeria and she studied here in Kigali. And you know, the semester is over. So her yeah. parents, you know, they tell her, you just need to, mm. to come back for four months and then you'll go back in Kigali when the semester starts, right? And she's like, no, I actually want yeah. to stay in Kigali. I want to work with Elizabeth because I believe in her vision. I believe in this. But again, her parents are like mine, you know, the African parents. Mm. They're like, it's a startup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the security? <laughs> exactly. Mm. And so like, when she explained me the whole discussion that she had with her parents and that she mm. believes so much, like not just in me, but in the potential of what I'm creating so much that she said, you know what? My time home, not necessary. Let me like sit with you and now I'm here for you full time and we're going to do this together. I don't know. It was yeah. more rewarding than any oh, wow. investor who will come and be like, oh yes, I believe in you. Here is a 100K, right? Because I'm like, she has so much choice and she could be yeah. interning from some, because she's a tech major, she could be interning for another tech company and things like that. And yet she chooses me with the budget that I have, <laughs> yeah. you know? So yeah, I think that the impact that I've been having, right. I've been able to have with my team is just like, what's keeping me up till now, you know, is that I'm not just doing yeah. this for myself, but you know, yes. I have people with me and we're in this together now. So yeah. You know what, Elizabeth, it's been so inspiring just like looking at your journey from where you started to where you started yeah. now. I mean, you've lived... <laughs> Right. Right. My life. I'm tired. <laughs> seriously, seriously. So we know you're a busy boss woman out here doing you and ish, out here running, you know, little yang yang verbose company. <laughs> I have two questions for you. Um, and my two um questions is one. We talked a lot about the challenges and things you know within the context that you're based in. Um, can you just tell us like three like peak and high impact moments that you're seeing like your brand like contribute to within the context then the second question is yeah. as a busy entrepreneur woman wearing many hats trying to make your way in such a competitive you know space how do you incorporate self-care into you know your, mm -hmm. your routine as you burn out and are you into, you know, been to Abia, baby girl and soft girl life. So are you into soft, soft life. life too? Soft life. <laughs> and, what, and, what, and what does your self-care and soft life routine look like? <laughs> uh, I, wait, just for the first question, was it something that I've already accomplished or that I'm... Yeah, so so the first question is pretty much, um, even with the challenges that you face, what is like two or three main um, key impact you're seeing your brand accomplish mm -hmm. within that context that you're so proud of? And so that's sort of the first, mm. the first. So focusing on the positive, the peak moments. I'll say that, you know, with the whole, for example, sustainability strategy and innovation, uh, at least at the local level, I've seen some mindset changing. And people understanding that, yes, women can be great entrepreneurs, that just 
not there to be cute and dress well and, you know, mm-hmm. get married and pop up kids and then that's it. I've seen, you know, a lot of people being like, okay, they're actually bad as, as you out there, girl boss, like they, they like to <laughs> sometimes refer to me. And I appreciate that because yeah. that's something that we take for mm-hmm. granted when you grow up, you know, in the Western world. Like it's someone, it's normal to see just a woman who's working for herself and then, you know, who's making money by herself and then who doesn't need a, necessarily yeah. a man to provide for her. Right. But then again, the continent and in Africa, the m- most girls is, I, I can't wait to reach maybe 23, 25 so that I get married, so that I can have stability again through marriage and things like that. Yeah. So I think that's some concrete like impact the mindset mm. changing um, about female in business and female entrepreneurship. Um, Another thing is mm-hmm. that now it's on maybe more from the other side, uh, from let's say the people I grew up with in Belgium and things like that, is that seeing that uh, black people are just not there to, you know, uh, beg for money and then be poor and then be your cleaners and things like that. I've had so many messages, former classmates yeah. were like, oh my God, we see what you're doing and, you know, how did you do this? And now they're asking me for advices, but I was like, mm. you weren't giving me your notes when I was asking for your notes. <laughs> it's okay. She said, don't make me remind you. By default, I made them discover my country, right? I made them discover the narrative and being able to just change the narrative around, you know, uh, Africa and especially Rwanda that is just not defined by 1994 and by the movie Hotel Rwanda, for example. No, there's more to that. The things that have been created, the like, yeah. you know, amazing creatives, amazing solutions that have been created on the ground. So I think I'll say the main, main impact is the narrative that mm. I'm, you know, I think I'm playing a role in <laughs> um, both uh, at the local level and also like uh, abroad. Yeah. Uh, that's the impact that I'm definitely most most mm-hmm. proud of. Yeah. Um, now on the personal and then self-care, I'm not going to lie that, you know, um, when I started this about two years ago, I just, you know, in my head it was like, I have to work, 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 work. And then, you know, it's when you go up in New York, you have to work twice as good as them to make, to get mm-hmm. half of what they get, whatever that quote is. And then I get back here and then I realize that I still have to do the mm-hmm, same. But now I'm competing mm-hmm. with my former, you know, my brothers, you know, I'm just competing, competing with the guys here. So I still have to put in way more work than they have to. And so I got into a very like unhealthy circle where mm. I was just like working, not sleeping a lot, not taking care of myself, not even, you know, taking myself out or doing some, not something nice for myself is that, no, I can't catch a break, you know? <laughs> so, um, and last year in June, I got like very, very sick with like I was in hypotension. I was like in the States where it was definitely a burnout, you know. Um, oh, but when no. I saw those consequences, mm. I was like, mm, never again. We're not doing this. Mm. Um, and slowly I've just implemented a few, you know, self-care habits that I'm doing just for myself. Either it is working out because, you know, mm. if I start my day like mm. that, so I feel makes me feel better about myself, about my body and everything. Uh, I take my Sundays, literally my Sundays are like a no-go. That's, I mm. can't touch my Sunday. You want to do this? I'm not available. Like Sunday is a day for me yeah. where I'm going to go eat out. I'm going to do my self-care routine. Mm. I'm going to go get a massage or something. I'm very also much about um, solo trips, you know? So I don't have to go far. Sometimes it's just in the country, yeah. uh, but just on the countryside. And I take myself on a solo trip. And I just understood that, you know, my body was, and me was the best thing that I have. So I might as well just, take care of it, invest in myself and spend money for myself, you know, on myself. (laughs) Absolutely. I think sometimes when we think about entrepreneurship, we feel like we always need to be moving. If we're not moving, like, oh my gosh, like we're not making money, the business isn't moving forward. But it's so important that even in those still moments, 
they are important, they're necessary. You know, when you have to be able to invest in your personal care, your self care, mm -hmm. in order to have that balance. Because if if you're not exactly. good, mm -hmm. your business can't mm -hmm. be good. Your employees can't be good. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's truly important. I think as women, we say this, especially boss women, to truly invest in our own self, the things that yeah. makes us happy. It can be small, it can be big, whatever that is mm -hmm. looks like to you. It's important to do that. Lastly. <laughs> I know I'm just like an African uh, pastor. Every time, like, okay, the church about to end, and then we're adding more sermons. <laughs> so I promise this is my last question. Earlier on, we had a quick conversation about you mm -hmm. writing, um, writing a book, and I know you mentioned how you um, took a little break from, you know, from finishing that book, and you know, since you've been um, back in Rwanda, you've been busy, you haven't revisited that thought. I was wondering, like, do you plan on revisiting um, your mm -hmm. book? Do you have a title yeah. in place? Or is it still in work? And <laughs> you know, we're we waiting for the publication now, okay? New York, New York best time seller, okay? So do you plan on revisiting that? Uh, I mean, 100%. The, the, there's a reason why I started it. And, you know, I love public speaking, but I think I'm even I'm better with words, um, like in writing. Uh, so that's something that I started mm -hmm. that I want to finish and I'm confident that whatever I went through, I needed to go through it. First of all, to give you content for the book, <laughs> it's content. Um, I, I just think that I need to be in a better place, better environment in order to, for me to pick that up. Um, mm -hmm. and for example, I've made the decision that from next year, I'll spend mm -hmm. more time in Belgium than in Kigali. I'll still be like in between both, you know, I'll come back and forth, mm -hmm. but I want to have a more solid basis there because, you know, that's where my support system is. And that's just where mm -hmm. I feel more at peace, um, in general. Okay. So hopefully as I spend more time there, uh, from next year, I'll be able to just, you know, pick up the book, uh, and make sure we have that coming as soon as possible um mm. and yeah i think yeah so let, let's see how it goes but yeah i think something that i think i wanted to bring it up at some point is that i had that whole three years of experience you know i, I got what mm. i needed to get i did find a lot of answers mm. to the question that i was asking myself before even like coming back to africa but now i get to the point where you know, talking about self-care and everything, it's better for me to do what I need to do what's best for me, you know. I'm giving my all to the country, to the people and all. I'm not giving them up. I'm still there. The business is still there. Yeah. And I'm just going to, like, make it bigger and bringing it to Europe. But as a decision for myself, taking care of myself, yeah. I also need to go where I feel my best at, you know. Yeah. And as, you know, I didn't see that coming. It was plot twist for me. I didn't know that Europe will be... <laughs> That place, so I feel better, but it's content yeah. again. So <laughs> no, no. Let me let me tell you. I feel like the journey is always going to have unexpected twists and turns, yeah. and part of the journey is you taking the time to stop, reflect, mm -hmm. and see what actually works for you. Because a lot of people think like, oh, you should just be there, you should go and persevere. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, that is you violating your own boundaries, mm -hmm. right? And if you violate your own boundaries, that is how you get pushed to burnout. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is. Your creativity also starts going down. And the whole point of you doing this is to be able to create and that in turn creates um, opportunities for others. Mm -hmm. So if you ended up like violating that boundary where you've now discovered like, hey, 
I am really more productive around my support system. I really feel, you know, just as a person, more whole, more secure, more free mm -hmm. in this other environment. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't diminish what you've experienced in mm -hmm. Kigali. It does not take any of that away. It doesn't take away the experience. It doesn't take away the connections, the partnerships, the opportunities. All it does is create the boundary for you to know exactly how far you need to go. And that is way more important than just kind of staying in Africa for the sake of saying, ah, I got here, I made it. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so you wait as a badge of honor, but you're dying inside every day. Who, who is benefiting, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I fully, res I fully, fully respect that. And I, and I love that for you. Mm -hmm. um, so what would you like to be remembered for? Like if, if at the end of the day, um, we, we wrote the book of Elizabeth. How would you like to be remembered? Woo! That's a tough question. <laughs> no, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I just, as long as I'm remembered for, as someone who's being able to challenge the status quo, uh, mm -hmm. I think I'll be I'll be happy to be honest. Uh, I used to think mm -hmm. that you know I'll be that person who's gonna change the world and I'd end up you know with all the presidents you know looking for me and that ah I'm yeah, gonna, yeah that's too much pressure. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I don't have to deal with that pressure. Uh, I don't think right, I'm right. gonna be able to solve you know uh, sexism, uh, racism, colorism, and all of that, but. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm recognized as someone who, how do you say, put my stone to the, uh, I don't know what's the English version. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. So you added to like the foundation to like the exactly. building of something new. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's thanks to that, you know, the, the generations that are coming, my daughters, my granddaughters, my nieces, whatever, are just somehow mm. able to experience a better life if they start decide to start a business, if they start to like move around the globe. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. of like I was able to challenge some of the things, you know, that was the normality. Yeah. I'm happy. Yeah. Honestly. I'm just I love that. I just want mm. to make sure that the word is like it's it's not it's not gonna be perfect, but it's just easier. For people who look like yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not going to happen now. It's not going to happen overnight. But hopefully this, you know, I'll be on some chapter somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love that. You know, there's a saying that, that I personally live by where it says, life is lived forwards, but it's understood backwards, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think one of the best things that this conversation has done for us is show the level with which you have taken the time to fully understand your life backwards mm -hmm. as you move forward. Mm -hmm. And I think your, your response to that question is a reflection of just that very fact mm -hmm. where you, you show the fact that you're not looking for this Herculean effort where you're like, and then I came in and poverty was eradicated. You're, you're very pragmatic in the sense that like, I, I want it to be better for the next person who's coming after me, for my nieces, like you said, for my children, for my daughters. Um, and, and I think that's a very pragmatic approach to things where you're, you're not being super idealistic, but you're saying, I, if I've moved the needle one degree, then that's good enough. Exactly. And, I, and I think that is that that is that is such inspiration to mm -hmm. me. I, I sometimes need to be pulled a little bit down from the clouds because I'm like, no, we must save them all. And it's like, but we, we physically cannot. Mm -hmm. And, and so I appreciate you continually, like just having this level of maturity and this level of reflection that 
has, has really challenged um, both patients and myself in, in this conversation. And so to round, to round it all off, we, we usually ask our guests, um, what excites you the most or inspires you the most about African women? I think it's our creativity. Uh, hmm. I used to think I was a very creative person until I get to the continent and I was like, well, I'm not that creative, actually. <laughs> um, we always find new ways to do things. And it's not new. Yeah. I, think, I don't think it's new. It's just that, unfortunately, mm. that's not the story that, you know, the colonizer was going to put out there. Because I'm sure that even then, when they came mm. here the first time, they were impressed about how things work, right? And I'm convinced that women were behind it because when I see the creativity and just, like, mm. the way we're just able, yeah, to create things with passion, you know? Not just because yeah. we mm. feel like we have to do it, but because it's definitely something that we have at heart. That's something that I really, really admire about mm. us. Uh, like, if we say yeah. that we're into, like, economic empowerment, then we're really passionate about it and we're going to give right. all of us to actually work towards it. So that's something mm. that, that amazes me a lot. Um, and then I used to be very tired of, like, hearing, you know, but you're so strong, you're so this and this, because I don't want to have to be strong, you know. I want to mm. be mm. I want to be crying like Becky does, you know. Like, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me tell you, let me tell you, pick somebody else, pick somebody else. I want to be with my own cup of tears, like black girl tears as well. Yes, there should be black girl like fragility as well. Literally. I, I, I hear you. I hear like, you. I, I still don't like it, but I very much admire our resilience because like to achieve what we achieve and you and the mm. patients and all of us just, we, despite all the no's and the obstacles and it takes a lot you know it really takes oh, yeah. so much mm. and I think no one I realized that even my own father can't understand what it takes you know yeah because he's still mm. a man at the end of the day as much as he loves me and he supports me yeah he still didn't go through all all that I that I went through right yeah so and his privilege is still going to protect him exactly more than it would you. exactly and I feel like yeah. Now, as as he gets older, he just gets more privileged because now he's older and wiser and all this. But <laughs> of, of course, now he's a uh, chef, so we must we must listen. Literally, and yeah, yeah. And my the fact that everything in this world is against us. There's nothing that's for us. Mm. Everything else, the systems that are in place, everything are mm. created against us. And despite that, you know, we still decide, you know, wake up, mm. do one thing, and not just wake up and do the do the things that we're supposed to do, you know? We decide to go out there. Mm -hmm. And um, that's my favorite poem, actually, from Maya Angelou, that says, Till I Rise, because that's actually the choice that we make. Yeah. Despite it all, we still decide to just not go out there and, you know, be basic. No, we shine and rise and yeah. just do the most. And I think that's, yes. that's something that fascinates me. I don't know. I think we're God's favorite at the end of the day. It doesn't look like, but Period. <laughs> Period. No, we absolutely are. I, I, I see it in my cosign, 110%. So, so where can people find you online? Where can people find you if it's on Instagram, if it's on LinkedIn, if it's an email address? Like, just share with the people where it is they can connect with you. All those investors who have listened to this, where can you find her? Because we're speaking it. We're manifesting Manif funds and we're manifesting that I was it to be global. So Literally. please let the people know where we can find you. Uh, I think something that's easy to reach out is the same way that you reach out to me. It's definitely LinkedIn because I'm very, I don't mm -hmm. post a lot, but I check a lot. <laughs> I'm a ghost on LinkedIn. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so my LinkedIn, <laughs> Elizabeth Veravose, 
Elizabeth with an S, please, mm-hmm. because I'm tired mm-hmm. of getting the emails with a Z. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you know what's crazy? I'm I'm such a stickler for trying to be respectful of how people say their name and write their name, which is why I'm also very conscious of I will say your name, but I also want you to say mm. it. Um, because I feel like there's a level of disrespect and just like a little bit of like a nonchalance where you're like, oh, well, let's do the Z, it's still Elizabeth. And it's like, but that's not my name. And there's so much tied to somebody's name that I'm like, I never want to minimize yeah. that by yeah. just, mm-hmm. you know, putting it to the mm-hmm. side. So I respect it. Say it. It's with an S and not a Z. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, I think my, my LinkedIn, uh, Elizabeth, but I will say, I, I don't think my Instagram is relevant, to be honest. It's very... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just me and my private life going on. Um, yeah, but I'm, no I'm planning on just opening opening a bit more on Instagram, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. And then I also, yeah, my email address, I'll say. So Elizabeth at Veravosa.com. Gotcha. Best, gotcha. Best way to reach out to me as well. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. any questions, any whatever request for collaboration, partnerships, I'm also all about collaboration. Very much welcome mm-hmm. that as well. So. Awesome, awesome. So... Wow, we are so excited to have had you with us and we've added show notes below for all our differently able listeners to enjoy or if there was something you missed, you can find them in the description box below. And so ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another African woman showing us that we're all a series of ands. So go on and be all you can be. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thank you, Binja. Thank you, Pastor.